Happy Palm Sunday to you. Uh, this is the beginning of what is often referred to, if you've ever been a part of a Catholic church or uh, what traditionally we might call high church, uh, this is the beginning of Holy Week. And uh, we are way more casual than that about pretty much everything, so we don't, don't normally use those terms. But this marks the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem the week that he would be crucified. And um, it was a week of finality for Jesus, last things. So I was trying to think of what would be a comparison. Um, and this is a terrible one, but I'm going with it anyway. For me, this is the best time of the year. Uh, uh, for a bunch of reasons, like weather-wise, so for me, there's like summer, summer's awesome, fall's okay, but it kind of makes me sad because I know winter's coming, winter's terrible, and spring is less terrible only because there's hope that summer's coming again. So I have that to be excited about, uh, but the last two weeks have been the best sports weeks of the year, if you're a sports fan, uh, because it's the NCAA college men's basketball tournament, uh, the women's tournament actually just started up as well. Um, I look forward to it really every year. Um, there have been seasons in my life when I would literally take vacation from work the first two weeks of the NCAA tournament because, you know, there's games all day, Thursday and Friday, and I don't want to miss out on those, but there's some cool things that happen. You have these upsets. You have these little-known schools you've never heard of that play against, like, the powerhouses, and most of the time they get smoked by 50 points, but occasionally one of them rises up, right? That's how Gonzaga became Gonzaga. This year, there's actually a small school, Loyola of Chicago, a pretty low-seeded school. They've made it all the way to the Final Four. Next week, they'll, they'll be one game away from playing for the national championships. So that's exciting. Um, so you have that, and you also have these buzzer beaters that happen at the end of the game, uh, where like everything shifts at the very end. Uh, this is going to reveal a lot too much about my soul, but I'm about to tell you what one of my favorite things in all the world is. And my wife is laughing because she knows what's about to happen. This is what I love. I love it when the home team comes down the court and they score the go-ahead basket, like right at the end of the game and the crowd's going wild, but there's still like three seconds left on the clock. And the other team like marches it back down and the crowd's like, ah, and they all end up like in silence with their hands on their head. I just love seeing that crazy swing of emotions. Um, so I look forward to that during the NCAA tournament. Now that happens occasionally. like. Some kid from some school that you've never heard of becomes like a national sports story for a couple of days, uh, and that's pretty cool. One of the things that's also kind of gripping about it, but not exciting, it's kind of sad, is that when that kid from the school you've never heard of made the shot at the end of the game to win, on the other side, there's a senior who just played his last game ever, and it ended really abruptly. And you know, if you play at that level, chances are your life has been all basketball your whole life up until this point, and it just ended unexpectedly, and it's very emotional. You can, you can see it. They wear it on the outside because there's just something about last things, about the finality of it. They're like, I don't know what the rest of my life looks like now, now that basketball's over. It's just been all basketball, and there's just something about uh, the finality of things that gives you an emotional response. Um, one that we might relate to, since there's not a whole lot of high-level basketball players in the room that I can see. Um, uh, the shortest person in the room just chuckled. That sound, I thought I recognized my mom's laughter there. Uh, uh, have you ever had a last day at a job that you had held for quite a while, and you walked in on your last day, and all of a sudden, you didn't hate that guy that much, and your boss wasn't as big of a jerk, and you know it just wasn't as bad. You just didn't really mind, because 
you know, the familiarity and the safety of it was kind of inviting now that you're right on the brink of branching out into the unknown and doing something new. Uh, last things, the finality, will kind of change your emotional state about things. Well, today marks Palm Sunday. This was a day of finality for Jesus. This was a day of last things. Uh, five days later, he was going to go to the cross. And uh, he knew that the end was in sight. And so try to get a picture of how Palm Sunday went down for Jesus. He rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, which had been foretold by the prophets hundreds of years before that that's, that's how the Savior would come. And there's people everywhere cheering for him. Uh, they waved palm branches, which is totally strange to us, but that's what they did. Um, and uh, they were super excited to see Jesus. Everybody's coming out to check this out. And the reason so many people were excited to see him, uh, if, you, if you read through the Gospels, what you'll notice is that just a few days before this, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, that might be worth investigating. So people are like, wow, you know, this, this guy raises people from the dead. I, I want to go check this out. News had spread quickly. Well, there's another dynamic that really makes this whole situation just bonkers, really crazy, is that um, you just get your head in their day. They didn't have like megatropolis cities like we have. Uh, a city of 100,000 people back then would have been like Los Angeles is to us. Uh, it just goes on forever and ever. Um, but at this time, during the Passover, the entire nation of Israel was basically shut down because as many as people as who could get there, that was a clumsy sentence, as many people as possibly could get to Jerusalem, they went to the city to celebrate the Passover at the temple. So the estimates say there's probably on the low end somewhere around 2 million people crammed into Jerusalem. Um, so you can imagine if Spokane just exploded to 10 million people for a week. Uh, that would be roughly the equivalent, um, about the population of New York City in Spokane for some event. That's what's happening. There's just people everywhere, and they all heard about this guy who raises people from the dead. So as you can imagine, Lazarus' situation had done pretty impressive things for Jesus' popularity. People are shouting. They shout out, Hosanna. That was a common expression of praise that they used, and they waved their palm branches, and they thought to themselves, if this guy raises people from the dead, maybe he's the Messiah that we've been waiting for for thousands of years. Now, that's a really poor description, but that just gives you a picture of some of the details. Try to just imagine the anticipation. Uh, I'd want to go see. I'd want to go check it out. That's what's happening right there. So you just imagine for us, it's every holiday, Christmas, Thanksgiving, New Year's, Fourth of July, National Hot Pastrami Day, which happens to be January 15th. All of that in one day. Every celebration that you can imagine is happening. People are checking Jesus out. Now, if you're a fan of the NCAA tournament, you also know that it, also, it all begins, uh, not when the games start, but it all begins on Selection Sunday. Uh, who's ever seen Selection Sunday? It's not as well known. So, what happens is, like, if we're a basketball team, let's say right here, we gather together, and we're watching on the screen to see if they call our name, if we get to be one of the 68 teams that go into the tournament. And um, so what happens is the national networks, they go out and they set up a camera in all these rooms. So the camera's looking at you, and then when your name is called, we just go crazy. We just go bonkers for it. Now, that's what Selection Sunday is. There's also the other teams that when that last name is called, oh, 
They all look around, or they're angry because they thought they should have been in. Well, that's, that's what happens on Selection Sunday. Get this now. This day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to the Jews was what they called Lamb Selection Sunday. This is either um, incredible divine foretelling or just the thickest irony ever. Maybe it's both, uh, but Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Sunday. Lamb Selection Sunday was the day that Jewish families would, they would go out and they would choose a spotless, perfect lamb that they would sacrifice during the Passover feast. This is that day. Nobody but Jesus could possibly have known the irony of all of that, uh, but that's, that's the day. So today what I want to do is I want to chase a thread that runs all the way from the beginning of the Bible, all the way from the Garden of Eden, right up to the cross, right up to the moment uh, that Jesus becomes a sacrifice for our sins. So if you go all the way back to the beginning, uh, this, isn't gonna, this sounds like it's going to take four days. I promise it's not. <laughs> Uh, if you go all the way back to the beginning, um, I'm not going to read a ton of the scriptures, but I'll try to just tell you where they are as we go so that you can, you can find them if you want, um, because it's pages and pages worth of reading. But all the way back to the beginning, Genesis 1-1, first page of the Bible, in the beginning, God. Now, I say this often, and I will probably say it many more times, if those four words are true, if in the beginning, God, then there's no logical problem with all of the words, any of the words that come after that. If in the beginning God, then he's capable of everything that came after that. In the beginning, God created the earth. He created everything beyond the earth. He created everything on the earth. And he created Adam and Eve. And when he was all done creating, his creative process was over, he declared it all to be very good. He said it was all good. In Genesis 6, uh, Genesis 2.25, it says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame, meaning... Nothing was hidden, nothing internal, nothing external. There was no deceit. There was no false motive. They were fully exposed in every way, and they had nothing to hide. Uh, evil was not a part of the creative order at this point. And God instructed them to enjoy his creation, to rule over it. I've created this for you. So he sent them out to rule over it, with one exception. Genesis 2, 16 says, And the Lord commanded man... You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Wow. Uh, it's kind of hard, hard to get your, your head around a little bit. Uh, but did you, uh, you remember when you were a kid and your parents got a new car? That, that ever happened? And, and the rule was, right, don't drink in the car. Don't eat in the car. Don't think about eating or drinking while you're in the car. For in the day that you spill in the car, you will surely die. Right? <laughs> that was the rule. Uh, I think most of us can probably get our head around that. But what eventually happened? Somebody ate and drank in the car. Somebody spilled in the car, which led to not really caring and more spills in the car. Uh, that's, that's how it happened. So did Adam and Eve eventually eat the fruit? Well, of course they did. It's, you know, it's hardly the same consequence, but, um, but similar principle, right? You know you're not supposed to, but eventually you take a little liberty here and there, and all of a sudden, your car's covered with stains. Um, of course they ate from it. Now, some people believe that the poison, the problem, was in the fruit itself. Um, I, I can kind of see that theological position. I'm of the persuasion that the problem wasn't the fruit. 
The problem was their rebellion against God. When God said, do this, or don't do this, as it were, and they said, yeah, I think I'm going to do it anyway, uh, that's, that's the problem. The rebellion against God uh, was their sin. Now, if you feel differently, that's okay. We can still both go to heaven. Uh, but I think the rebellion against God is what really did the damage. Through this one act of sin, this one small act of rebellion, sin and consequently death entered the world. Now, try to crawl into Adam and Eve's situation. They've disobeyed God. First time that's ever happened. There's no precedent. No one knows what happens when you disobey God at this point. And what they do is they feel their shame, so they hide. They hide from God because, well, they don't know. Is he going to smite them down immediately? Or is he, is he going to give them a pass on this first count of negligent fruit eating? Maybe it's not that big a deal to God. They don't know, so they hide. They feel their shame. And God does something that there's no way they could have foreseen. There's just, it hadn't happened before. Uh, they hide because of their shame, and so what he does is he covers them with clothes made from animal skin. Now, think about the, the consequence of this. In order to get animal skin, what had to happen to an animal? An animal had to die. Death enters the world as the outcome of this one sin, this one act of rebellion. Death didn't exist up until this moment, and I can't really imagine what Adam and Eve must have made for it. They, they didn't know that death was a thing, that it was a possibility up until this point. God was giving them a foreshadowing of what was going to happen thousands of years later to Jesus on Good Friday at, a, at Golgotha, a place called the place of the skull. He was giving them this foreshadowing. The outcome of sin is death. In order for the guilty parties, Adam and Eve, to have their shame covered, what had to happen? An innocent animal had to give its own life. And I'll be honest, it's kind of troubling. Like It's a little bit, it's a little bit weird in those terms, uh, but that's a reality. An innocent party made a substitutionary payment so that the guilty parties could have their shame covered. And this is the first look we have at the notion that theologians call substitutionary atonement. Um, that might be a foreign phrase to you, but just rest assured, it's the best news you've ever heard. Because if it doesn't exist, we are in trouble. Substitutionary atonement means an innocent party paying the penalty for the sins of another. It's the first foreshadowing that we have that, of that. So fast forward a couple thousand years. See, I told you we were going to accelerate. We get to Moses in Egypt. Uh, man, two of the greatest movies of all time, right? Moses, uh, of course, has his epic, I think it's Charlton Heston way back in the day. Uh, and then there's kids' movies made about Moses and the Exodus. And in this season, God's people have digressed significantly to a place where they're almost entirely faithless, at least in terms of the one true God. Uh, kind of similar like, to the world that a lot of us live in. Like, you know, there's a lot of people we know who are spiritual, but they don't worship God. They just kind of have their own concept of spirituality. Uh, the Israelites are worshiping all kinds of idols at this point, and there's this perpetual friction between them and the Egyptians. They're enslaved to the Egyptians, and they're just doing terrible things to each other. There's murder, there's idol worship, there's sin in every direction. You know, we think of the Egyptians as the bad guys because they're uh, holding the Israelites captive, and yes, that's true, but there's plenty of, plenty of blame to go around. There's plenty of sin to go around. Uh, that's probably always been true, but... 
the Israelites find themselves in this spot where they are very, very far from God. And they hope that someday they would be a blessed nation, just like God told Abraham. But that hope is, is far away now. It doesn't look like a reality. And it's all because of sin, both theirs and because of the Egyptians. Sin and rebellion have just become the way of the world at this point. So God announces his judgment against sin, specifically against Pharaoh's rebellion, if you're familiar with the story. But the truth is, everyone's participating in this situation. And God announces his judgment. It's in Exodus chapters 11 and 12, if you want to read the story. Um, it sounds very, very extreme. God announces that his presence is going to pass through Egypt, and the payment for sin will be the death of every firstborn son. Wow. That's, that might be over the top, at least from my perspective. If I don't understand the severity of sin, God understands it better than I do. But as he always does, because he's so gracious, he gives them a way out. If you remember the story, if you've read it before or seen the movie, uh, he tells them to take a spotless lamb to slaughter it and, and put its blood over their door. And it's kind of interesting, just a side note, one of the instructions he gives them is, not to waste the lamb. He says, uh, if your family won't eat an entire lamb, share it with your closest neighbor. Uh, I don't know that that's super relevant to the story. I just find it really interesting uh, that, um, that God's not into just like senseless, let's just kill everything. Um, you know, he's also reasonable in that way. Uh, he gives them a way out and he says, take the blood of the lamb, a spotless lamb, and put it over your doorpost. And he tells them that if you do that, when the angel of death comes through, it will pass over your home, hence the name of the feast, the celebration of the Passover. Well, some people take it seriously and they do it. Some people don't take it seriously. So try to get yourself into this situation. Just imagine you're a six, seven, eight, nine-year-old firstborn son of an Israelite family. And dad goes into the sheep pen and he gets your friend Booty here. I think I brought a picture of Booty. It's getting personal now, isn't it? You probably remember when Bootsy was born. It wasn't that long ago. You might even have held the bottle for Bootsy, although I don't think they did that back then. Um, and Dad takes Bootsy over to the chopping block, and you're thinking to yourself, Dad, what are you doing to Bootsy? What, what did Bootsy do? Okay, you just imagine kind of crawling into that situation. Not Bootsy. And your dad explains to you this principle of substitutionary sacrifice. Essentially, it's either going to be Bootsy or it's going to be you. Because as Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Uh, that, would be, that would be really harsh if God hadn't clearly get, told us that up front. Uh, separation from God. Because he's perfect, because he's holy, uh, sin won't coexist with him. Now, God has told us that's the clear penalty. Remember, sin brought death into the world. Death is the outcome of sin. It's always been the outcome of sin. And your dad might explain to you that sin has to be atoned for, and today is the day of atonement. And that night, when the angel of death came through Egypt, uh, those who had put the blood of the innocent lamb over their doorpost were released from the penalty of that sin. An innocent lamb's blood was shed instead of theirs. Now, that would be just kind of a gruesome, disgusting story, if not for the fact that it's a foreshadowing of what was to come. If not for the fact that you see the connection, the shedding of the innocent blood was a substitution for the guilty. 
The stated penalty for sin is death, and it's being paid by another. What's interesting about um, the Hebrew culture, you've probably heard the expression sacrificial lamb. Uh, you hear it in all kinds of secular contexts that have nothing to do with faith or God all the time. It's a common expression. Uh, it actually started right there that day. That's where it came from, and it was part of Hebrew culture uh, really from that day forward, uh, still even up until this day. So roll ahead another 500 years. We're trucking through the Old Testament, all the way up to a prophet named Isaiah. And whenever we come to the prophets, I always feel obliged to tell you this. Uh, it was different back then than it was now. Okay? If someone self-proclaims, self-identifies as a prophet, and they foretell some future event and it doesn't happen, the worst thing that happens to them is we laugh at them. Most likely, we like look the other way and pretend like we didn't hear them say that because we're too embarrassed by it or embarrassed for them. But back then, if you claimed to be a prophet and what you said didn't happen, they would literally drag you out of the city and throw rocks at you till you were dead because they took the representation of God's word that seriously. Um, so, so it wasn't something you just played with lightly. Uh, you didn't just claim to speak on God's behalf. Isaiah lived at this time when Israel was a mess. Uh, it was a disaster, which is most of the time if you've read the Old Testament. But, uh, but here at this time, they're living in just open rebellion against God, and they are paying the price for their stupidity. Uh, they're, they're watching for this Savior to come save them. That's about the only thing they're doing right. Their, their nation is completely divided at this point. Literally, half of them moved to the north, and, or more than half of them moved to the north, and a smaller segment stayed in Jerusalem. Um, their kingdom is divided, and they're watching for this Messiah that they've been hearing about to come and save them, and they're expecting him to come and restore the kingdom. Well, Isaiah wrote this prophecy about that Messiah several hundred years, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 700 years before Christ, and I just want to read a few verses of it to you from Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 4. This is what it says about the Messiah who was to come. It says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. That's what Isaiah says hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus lives. And at the time, people were like, what are you saying right now? I mean, it's bad enough that we've been like sacrificing Bootsy for our sins all these years, but it, it sounds like you're saying that God's going to sacrifice a person. That's crazy talk much less the savior of the world. People just, people just didn't know what to make of him. I don't know, Isaiah, that, that sounds wild. And for hundreds of years, the, the leaders of the nation and the religious scholars, they, they watch and they wonder to see if they can find out what Isaiah meant by this, when he starts talking about this Messiah that would be led to the slaughter. And for hundreds of years, nothing Eventually, God just goes completely silent for over 400 years. And then one day, an obscure, kind of quirky, little-known rabbi named John, we refer to him as John the Baptist, he sees Jesus and he yells out in the crowd, look, 
Behold, John chapter 1, verse 29. He points right at Jesus and he says, The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is our substitutionary sacrifice. This is the one that our nation's history has been foreshadowing. And three years after John's announcement, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Sunday. Just a couple days after that, he's betrayed by one of his closest followers. He's falsely accused of blasphemy, which is nothing to us in our society. Um, but in their day, it was, it was a big deal. Um, he's charged with blasphemy because it kind of sounded like he was claiming to be God. And we're not okay with that. And so he's brought before this religious court, um, and he's charged with this blasphemy for his claims to be God. And the same type of deal as with the prophets. Uh, you know, if you falsely claim to have that kind of relationship with God, uh, you will be hated. That, that was a guarantee in their, in their time. And so, uh, of course, the people that he'd been at odds with all along, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they play the part of the judge and the jury. That's, that's their role in this kind of kangaroo-type court, and they seize the opportunity to get rid of him. But little did they know that they were fulfilling what Isaiah had said was going to happen to the Messiah. Jesus is convicted. He's convicted by this group of people uh, who abuse him, and then they, they want to execute them, but Jerusalem in that day, along with most of the known world, is uh, occupied by the Romans. Uh, really, there's never been anything in the history of the world like the Roman Empire, and they need the, they need the okay, the go-ahead of the overseer, uh, the Roman overseer in this particular area. And so uh, they take him to a man named Pilate. John 18 is where you can read that interaction. Uh, this is one of those places where uh, extra-biblical history, like it describes what the Bible is describing. There was a historian named Cornelius Tacitus. He was a Roman historian. His job was to essentially record the history of the Roman Empire. Uh, Rome was one of the first societies that did this, uh, which is super helpful to us when we're trying to understand some of the dynamics in the Bible. And this is one of the things he recorded. Christus, or Christ, the founder of the Christian name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. One of those places where an extra-biblical author who's not a Christian, has nothing to do with the church, actually says the exact same thing that the Bible, the Bible describes. It's interesting because in Jesus' trial before Pilate, if you read it in John 18, Pilate essentially says, listen, I know you all don't like this guy, but I don't see any reason to put him to death. Yeah, I mean, he's saying some crazy stuff, but like, is it really that big of a deal? And what happens is a mob gathers, and they want Jesus' blood. And finally, Pilate is more worried about the mob than he is about killing an innocent person, so he, he concedes. He gives in to them. And so they take Jesus, and he's flogged. Now, uh, if you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ, it's actually a pretty historical, accurate description of what happens. Uh, flogging, without like, trying to get into the gruesome details too far, is what they would do is they'd take strands of leather and they would weave or braid pieces of bone into it so it would have little sharp kind of shards in it so that when they would whip someone, it would actually dig into the skin and, and rip the flesh off. Uh, history says that somewhere around two-thirds of people didn't survive the flogging. 
Uh, which is funny because we get this picture. You ever see like a, 70, a picture of Jesus and he looks like he's from the 70s with flowing locks and you know, perfect skin tone? Uh, the truth about Jesus is that he was a carpenter. Now, he was a carpenter at a time before power tools, before lumber mills, before trucks. Uh, I'm sort of inclined to think that Jesus was probably one of the toughest humans on the planet at the time, as is evidenced by the fact that he survived the flogging. So I think that's probably a more accurate picture, but he survives the flogging, and then he finds himself in this really crazy position. Remember five days ago when he was coming into town, and people were shouting Hosanna and waving their palm branches? Guess what those people are saying now? Crucify. The word crucifixion and the word excruciating actually have the same etymology. They have the same origin. And these people who were just praising him, what a fickle crowd. All of a sudden, they're calling for him to be crucified, and Pilate gives in to his demands, and they line the streets again, but not to, not to praise him, to beat him, to spit on him, to laugh at him, to mock him as he walked down the road to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And when he's there, of course, they put some crude spikes through his wrist just below the hands, and they, they raise him up on the cross, and there he is, left to bleed out or hang there until he's too weak to breathe. That's, that's the reality of crucifixion. And as Jesus hung on the cross, the Bible tells us that the sky went dark in the middle of the day. How crazy is that? That's one of those things that I read it and I'm like, I don't know, that's kind of out there for me. Uh, but it's also one of the things that history outside of the Bible actually records uh, as well. Uh, there was a man named Thallus who uh, he wrote a history of the Mediterranean world, so kind of this specific localized area of the Roman Empire. Uh, and... It's completed in or about the year 52 A.D., so just, just within about 18 years of uh, the crucifixion. Well, uh, his original work is lost, but in the 3rd century, there's a, a historian named Africanus. Now, Africanus was, um, he was like the Michael Jordan of historians. He's, he's like the guy. He actually ascended career-wise all the way to the point that he was appointed to build the, the emperor's empire. And he wrote a five-volume history of the world. And in it, he quotes Thallus, probably pronounced Talus, but uh, the first century historian. This is, what, uh, this is what he wrote. He said, in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, which is the year 33 AD, there was, quote, the greatest eclipse of the sun, and that it became night in the sixth hour of the day, uh, which, which is noon for them, so that the stars even appeared in the heavens. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia, and many things were overturned in Nicaea. So this eclipse, whatever it was, it went dark in the middle of the day so you could see the sky, so you could see the stars in the sky. Even history tells us of that. Now, twice a day, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., the residents of Jerusalem would have heard the sound of a shofar. Has anybody ever heard a shofar before? I admit that was a few of us. Uh, I got a picture of one. Yeah, it's what it looks like. It's kind of an ugly thing. Giant, uh, it's a giant horn, and it sounds like what you would think it sounds like when you, uh, when you see it. It's like the guys on the Ricola commercial. You guys remember those? Uh, sounds like that. Uh, those would sound twice a day at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. And the shofar signaled the moment that the priest in the temple sacrificed a lamb for the sins of the people, the sacrificial lamb. So when they heard the sound, the entire city would come to a halt. Work would stop. Commerce would stop, play would stop, school would stop, 
in remembrance or observance of the substitutionary sacrifice. For centuries, people have observed this sound of the shofar in the temple. What many of them didn't know on this day when they heard that sound is that outside the city, the Lamb of God was being sacrificed for the sins of the world. That includes you and me. It's pretty cool, pretty crazy day. They had no idea. Now, we don't have to guess what time of day Jesus died because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the time of his death in their Gospels, 3 p.m., same time as the sound of the shofar. At 3 p.m., two million people heard the sound, and they thought it was just the priest making a sacrifice in the temple. But in reality, the sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world had just been made. Now, uh, I bet for Adam and Eve, they were a little disturbed when God slaughtered that first animal. And I'm, I'm sure that that little Israelite boy never forgot the image of that day, poor little Bootsy. And no doubt, people were deeply troubled by Isaiah's prophecy. People were trying to figure out what he was talking about forever. I can imagine all of that. But what I can't imagine is the sorrow that would have overwhelmed God's heart when his son breathed his last because of me. That's the part that I can't get over. That's the part that I just can't get my head around because it doesn't feel right. I mean, I'm the guilty one. Shouldn't I be the one who pays for my sin? I mean, after all, for all of us, there's been a time when you knew what was right and you chose to do this anyway. Shouldn't you be the one held account for that, not an innocent one? Uh, but that's exactly why they call the message about Jesus the gospel, the good news. That's why it's good news for you and for me, because Jesus paid the bill. The wage of sin is still death, but it's already been paid for you. It's already been paid for you. The gospel isn't do good and try harder. The gospel is Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid the bill. He took the beating, he walked the road, and he hung on the cross because he knows your name, because he knows that you needed it, and so do I. That's really, really good news. So let me ask you this question. What is it time to let go of? If Jesus went to the cross so that you could go free, what is it time to go free from in your life? You and I will be defined by many things, our job, our kids, our socioeconomic status, our appearance, uh, most of all maybe by the mistakes that we've made, by our sin, by our shortcomings. What is it time to let go of? John chapter 1 verse 11 says, Jesus came to that which was his own. He came to his own people, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus went to the cross so that you could have a new name and a new start. That's pretty cool. I'm pretty grateful for that. It's time to just let go of the failures of the past. It's time to let go of the bitterness, the perpetual sin that would hold me back, that sucks the life out of us. Jesus went to the cross so that we could be free from that. It's time to exchange all of that for a new name and a new start. Galatians 5.1 says, It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Let's take that burden off. Jesus has paid for all of that.